Ideas are everywhere. Welcome to Lessons Learned in Marketing, the Phoenix Group Podcast. I'm your host, David Bellarive, and today I'm going halfway around the world to get a guest for the show. You see, there's no ends to how far I'll go. Dr. Gary Mortimer is Associate Professor of Marketing at QUT Business School in Brisbane, Australia. We are going to talk about food, retail, research, and IKEA. I know you're in. Gary, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for taking some time and and sharing your knowledge with us. Great. Uh, G'day, David. It's great to chat. Can you um, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Because you have a fascinating history in um, in in I guess marketing before you even became a, an educator, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah no, no, that, that's right. I mean, I really had no intention of becoming a I guess an academic and and, and teach marketing. I I left school at a very young age, at fifteen, and um, my, my very first. Uh, job was pushing shopping trolleys in a, in a grocery store uh, and then I moved into sort of a, a bagging checkout role and then I moved into sort of other roles within the retail area and then I guess over you know, I guess the next 25 years progressively moved my way up through management roles and into into buying and into operations and into, into marketing and and whilst I did that as a I guess as a full-time career retail management I was slowly, you know, nutting away at tertiary education, university, uh, and going to night school to sort of, you know, knock off a couple of degrees. Uh, and it wasn't until I was sort of 40 that um, I had a sort of a mid, mid-life career change, I guess you would say, and um, really had, a, a, I guess, a hunger and an enjoyment of actually knowledge and learning um, and was invited to join a, a university here in Queensland, uh, which is still very connected with industry. So it's great to be able to take sort of industry knowledge as well as what's happening in, in broader marketing terms and consumer behaviour terms and being able to share that knowledge now with uh, graduates. Well, you might be uh, one of the rare breeds of professors who's actually have some some actual practical experience too. So it's great the two are married together. Yeah, I think I think it's very important. Um, and I remember spending time in industry interviewing graduates that sort of came out with some very good textbook knowledge, but not a lot of um, applied knowledge. Yeah. So it's great that we understand the the diffusion of innovation, but what does that really mean for for businesses today? So um, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, the research that you're doing because it's really fascinating. But I came across you uh, through, uh, uh, I guess, a blog post or an article in the conversation, mm. and you were talking about the IKEA effect, which I'd never heard of before. Can you tell me about that a little bit or tell us about that? Yeah, yeah certainly. So, it, it, so this actually dates back to about the 1950s, and uh, a U.S. company at the time, General Mills, um, was producing a range of uh, Betty Crocker instant cake mixes. And, and the reason they produced these instant cake mixes was initially designed to um, you know, save uh, U.S. housewives time and efficiency in actually creating cakes and and in the past before then and i'm generalizing as it was the 1950s but Mm -hmm. housewives basically 
cooked cakes and muffins from scratch. So this was a novel idea of actually putting it all in a box, pre-mixing it, and it would sell really well in supermarkets. And what they found is that the sales didn't take off. Um, so they actually brought in a consumer psychologist to do to to do some focus groups to understand why this amazing product that was very, very convenient and, and packaged well wasn't selling. And through these interviews, it, it, it's claimed that um, housewives at the time said, listen, it, it feels like we're cheating. It, it actually feels that making an instant cake mix is actually devaluing our skills as bakers. And you know, we put a lot of pride into actually making a cake from scratch and bringing it out and sharing that with our family or with, with people that come and join us for, for morning tea. Um, so he then suggested to General Mills at the time, well, we need to remove the dry egg component from the, the, the premix cake mix and just get people to do a couple of steps, add water and add two fresh eggs, which seems to be very much the case we see in instant cake mixes still today. Mm -hmm. uh, and they found that sales took off. Sales took off because it seems that women at the time, uh, consumers today, actually enjoy the experience of investing time and energy to a certain level in an activity making a product. Um, and I guess it wasn't until about 2011 that uh, a number of um, consumer psychologists in the States had a look at that phenomenon and say, is that really true? Is it empirically true that does this work? And they ran a number of experiments uh, and found that, in fact, that, that theory holds. If you actually get people to participate in the, the co-production of something, whether it's cake mixes or other things, they actually value it more than something that's simply bought off the shelf. And thus the, I guess, part of the appeal or one of the appeals of IKEA, in a sense. Yeah, so it wasn't really called the IKEA effect until after 2011, despite it sort of you know, brimming away you know, back in the 1950s. And uh, the, the psychologists in question, they, they ran a number of experiments with, with university students uh, and they had them produce Lego. So they got them to build something, then they got them to break it apart. Uh, they got them to um, do origami. So you know, they got them to build origami or they were given an origami uh, pre-made piece uh, and then they also got them to, to make uh, an Ikea box and it was from that they actually started to name the effect after the Swedish flat pack furniture retailer, the Ikea, so they called it the Ikea effect. And is there any uh, indication of, of a limit to this, like sometimes Ikea or I guess some some uh, some pieces of some things you might buy would be a little bit maybe would they would they ever reach the point where you the, the effect isn't beneficial where you're going nah I, it's too much for me to deal with yeah that they they did find um some boundaries to the effect or limits to the effect and certainly and I'm sure listeners would would agree that if they've bought IKEA furniture or they've bought something they have to construct maybe it's a, a garden shed or it's a, a bookshelf um, it gets to a point where it becomes so onerous so difficult so complex that, it, that, that there is no value in it um, and they found that with probably the Lego experiment that they, they got them to, to make it, then deconstruct it, uh, and then they didn't value it as much or, or they got it and it was just too difficult, uh, particularly for some consumers, and, and they didn't enjoy the experience. Um, so, so there is a balance, uh, and I think that's why we often see, uh, we'll use IKEA again as an example, that most of the furniture is relatively simplistic to put together. Um, and I put together a couple of armchairs recently, and it was simply the chairs fully constructed. I just needed to put the legs on the uh, on the chair, and, and there it was. So it was 
pretty simple construction. Um, even the IKEA instructions tend to be more graphical and pictorial than than actually words to make it even quite simple because I guess businesses are aware if we make it too onerous, too difficult, then those boundary conditions apply and people actually don't enjoy the activity and don't value it as much. It's interesting because after I read it, I thought, oh, that's true for me. I, I, I do kind of feel a little bit of that pride putting legs on a stool or something as simple as that. <laughs> It, it, it is quite an interesting experience until I started to look at it. Uh, I think we all reflect on ourselves of doing it ourselves and, and stepping back, you know, despite sort of always having an Allen key left over, a couple of bolts and nuts <laughs> left over, we step back and go, I, I feel a sense of accomplishment here, actually. And you know, I guess to some extent, you know, you, know you, you take photos of it, you share it on Facebook and go, look, I've just got this new sort of dining room chair or dining room table I've constructed, a new bookcase, or I've redecorated my my, my daughter's room. Uh, so there is a sense of pride. There is a sense of accomplishment where we actually invest time and energy into doing something, whether it's building furniture or, or making making a dinner or making a meal, um, more than simply just ringing up uh, a delivery service and having you know, a meal delivered to us. Have you seen any limits to this? I mean, other than things getting overly complicated, is there, like, could I just introduce part of that into any business and say, well, there's a little bit of this component. We're going to make you do it yourself. Yeah, we're actually now seeing, uh, certainly here in Australia, I imagine it's also in Canada and the US as well, um, the growth of um, home meal delivery kits. And if we think about sort of cooking dinner for our family, we've, we've got essentially for a while two options. We, we can go to a supermarket, we walk up and down the aisles, we, we purchase all the ingredients that we need, we, we take them home and then we prepare the meal. And, and notoriously after we've done that, there's always leftovers or there's always sort of waste uh, at the end of that because we've bought too many ingredients. Uh, the, the second option, of course, is well, we don't shop the, the supermarkets or the grocery stores, we don't cook at home. We simply just call out and get something delivered to us. It's pre-made. What we're now seeing is brands like HelloFresh um, mm. and Marley Spoon, these brands that will sort of meet you halfway. So convenient in the fact that I can jump online and I can order a particular meal and it comes in a box, uh, but I still have to prepare it. So it's just a nice sweet point where those brands are now saying, well, we'll, we'll do the shopping for you. We'll get you the, the exact ingredients you need in the exact volumes that you need. So therefore, you very have you know, very limit waste, if any waste whatsoever, after you've made the, the meal. But you also still have the, the feeling of accomplishment of actually making a meal for friends or family. Um, more recently, I was in a supermarket and uh, I was in the uh, international food section and there was jars of Indian curry, so, you know, but madrasas and butter chickens. And mm -hmm. again, using that mindset of, I'm not really cooking an Indian curry if I just simply add a jar of curry into a bit of beef. Um, brands like Patax here in Australia um, now also making um, curry kits. So exactly the same formulation, except you need to add the dry spice. You then need to add another part of it, and then you add the sort of the simmer sauce at the end. So three simple steps, but actually makes you feel as though you're actually actively cooking a meal, not simply just putting a jar of curry on top of a bit of beef. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I um, yeah, we see that with uh, um, I guess silly things like salad kits. We I don't know if I've seen the Patax kits yet but that that's very interesting 
Yeah, I mean you, and and again, yeah, Patax made a, a great curry. It's a British company made curries in a jar, which is very convenient. Uh, and now they've you've still got that option, but of course you've also now got the curry kit option. Salad kits is another great example. So it's very easy when you start to walk through your your supermarket. How many sort of uh, kits are available to, to create a meal, uh, which only usually involves two, maybe three simple steps, because again, brands are aware of the boundary conditions of the IKEA effect. If it's six steps or eight steps, um, it becomes too complex, too onerous, and there's no value in actually undertaking the activity. That's interesting. And I see that, um, oh, was I going to say the, um, there's probably another benefit to that too, in that you you know, it's it, unlike a frozen dinner or a frozen meal that you buy. Now you're actually seeing things going together and, and it's, you feel a bit more, I guess, healthy. Yeah, there's certainly the, the health aspect to it. And, and, and then, of course, there's the, uh, I guess, the food sustainability aspect that, you know, we, we know that food waste is a, is a global problem, particularly in you know, first world nations and lots of criticism. And certainly here in Australia, where supermarkets are certainly under pressure to reduce food waste, we've seen Infomarche in France uh, undertake a number of different programs to reduce waste. We've seen Asda and Sainsbury's do a similar thing in the UK. But when we think about those food kits, they're, they're pre-measured so if you need um, you know 900 grams of a particular minced meat and that's exactly what you get you don't get any more you don't get any less so there's rarely any ways to residue after that and the, I think the other thing I'm certainly seeing in Australia and we think back over some of the toys we used to engage with um, the, the IKEA effect holds in those spaces as well so um, there's a, a particular US company called Build-A-Bear they've got a franchise out here in Australia now anyone can go in Yes, anyone go into a you know, Walmart and buy a teddy bear for their daughter or their son. But Build-A-Bear is built on this IKEA effect where you actually go in and actually construct the bear yourself. Uh, you add the stuffing, you put the legs on, you put the decorations on. And, and simply by doing that actually creates this, this greater sense of ownership um, and, and, and pride and value in, in undertaking the bear. You've built that yourself. Uh, I remember growing up as a kid in the 80s and um, the, the plastic models used to get, so you used to be able to make um, aeroplanes or, uh, or cars. Once again, you can buy a pre-made model at a toy or a hobby store, but the act of actually sitting there possibly with dad or with mum and building these things from scratch, you walk away and that, and that sits on your desk or in your bedroom uh, for, for many years. If you look at that and say, well, I, I built that from scratch. Mm. So the IKEA effect actually permeates not just food and supermarket retailing, but a number of the things we do. Yeah, even just putting the stickers on a little car makes you feel like uh, you've you've done something. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, now, yeah. you do a lot of. Um, I guess your your area of interest is research into consumer behavior and about um, local foods. Is um, what what are you seeing as far? I know here in 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 Canada, especially around our area, um, there seems to be a, a movement to want to. Uh, I guess shop local a little bit more but it's also a bit of a challenge what are you seeing uh, we're definitely seeing the, the, the same thing here in australia with um a focus around local food 
uh, and there's a number of drivers for that. One is, I guess, um, food miles and uh, impact to the environment. So actually moving product from very, very vast distances. And Canada is very much like Australia. We have a very small population. We have a, a lot of land mass. Um, so to move things takes a long, a long time. Um, so you know, it's, it's that's certainly a driver to, you know, to reduce emissions, to keep trucks off the road, and to source product locally. Um, naturally, that's that's difficult. I'm based in Queensland, which is a subtropical environment. We have lots of tropical fruit here, but a lot of the citrus is grown further south in New South Wales, and sort of then we've got grapes and wine that's grown even further south in. Victoria and South Australia. So we're talking about two or 3,000 kilometres in distance. Um, that's one of the drivers. The other one is around supporting local um, economies. And uh, I was recently at a, at a pub uh, ordering a steak meal. Um, like any other pub you'd expect to find in Australia or around the world. And for the first time in the menu, I actually saw that they, they were able to identify the provenance of the, the steak. So uh, it was a, a fillet steak from Mount Me, and that's sort of you know, about 50 kilometres from where I am in Brisbane. Uh, and there was also a sirloin from Kilcoy, again, about another 50 kilometres outside of Brisbane. And, and being able to identify the provenance really helps consumers, number one, realise it's not travelling a great distance. It's generally a lot fresher. It's not coming from a 1,000 kilometres away. It's, it's great because it keeps those admissions down, keeps trucks off the road to some extent. But it is also going back to helping local farmers, local graziers, uh, local primary producers. Here in Canada, Ontario has done a great job of um, doing similar thing, like like building that, um, I guess, identification of, of where the products have come from and encouraging restaurants to serve kind of that um, and identify the, the local products. Mm-hmm. It seems like, um, will, will people purchase on, on that local pride? Yes. Yeah, so, so I wrote a, um, an article on, on um, local food purchase intentions in, in the British Food Journal a couple of years ago with a, with a colleague in Chile. Uh, and um, we found that, that, that people were very keen, in fact, were willing to pay more for a product where they knew the provenance was coming from. Um, so, and, that was, and, and that sort of theory holds across a number of things. If, if you're aware of the provenance, um, uh, it, it's often referred to as ethnocentric tendencies. So we, we don't dislike um, other foods from other countries or other regions, but we actually prefer food or product from our own region more highly so we have these ethnocentric tendencies so certainly if we can if retailers and businesses restaurants cafes bars are able to identify the provenance of the seafood of the beef uh, particularly the vegetables um, people are more willing to purchase uh, and people are more willing to pay more for those experiences and it's really interesting that um, despite these products coming less distance um, we're willing to pay more for that sort of um, I, I guess that product yeah, i wonder why is that I think there's a number of things. Number one, again, so the research that we looked at um, was interesting. A really high proportion of Australians believed that our primary industry sectors, so the farmers, the graziers, the, the cattle farmers, were doing it tough, uh, and, and that uh, that in, in paying more for a local steak or, or local vegetables or a local product, it seemed in many ways we're actually supporting 
our local economy better and, and, and hopefully that, that money was staying within the local economy and creating jobs and helping farmers out. Uh, and again, I think it's also that the surety and the confidence of, of the freshness of the product. Uh, and, and certainly here in Australia, we're seeing that in the Chinese market where you know, there's a, a strong desire for Australian um, produce and, and beef moving into the Chinese market because, again, they're aware of, I guess, the purity and the confidence of food production here in Australia over the Chinese market. So knowing where the provenance of the food comes from certainly um, taps into those those elements of consumers that, that, that are willing to pay a bit more for, I guess, confidence, surety and, and supporting local businesses. I wonder if you found or if you surmise about if, if what the if there are limits to this. Like uh, thinking here locally, we're we're well known for uh, grains. I mean, the breadbasket of Canada and pulse crops yeah. and uh, beef. But then someone maybe makes a wine, and even if it's local, it's like eh, maybe we. Uh, is there? Can you go too far, or does it? Uh, would it apply anyway? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I, I think um, you know, craft beer is certainly on the uptake here in Australia, um, and um, so the provenance of where the beer is actually produced is really important. So, um, I think what what we find is that there are countries around the world well known for certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, we think about Switzerland or Belgium. We think about chocolate. Um, you know, we, we think about Japan. We think about Wagyu beef. Um, you think about wine, you're probably looking at Simona or Napa Valley in California, um, or French wine, or of course, Australian wines are, are, are very good as well. And then you might get something that's sort of local, but doesn't really make a great deal of sense. And I, I know that here in Australia, particularly in northern Cairns, we grow one of the biggest vanilla crops. Um, mm. And most vanilla comes out of Madagascar in, in, um, in Africa. Um, and the, the temperament just happens to be right in North Queensland. But again, you kind of don't think about vanilla coming from North Queensland, but you think about vanilla coming from Madagascar out of, uh, out of Africa. Um, so I, I think there are limits um, in a broader sense that, you know, consumers globally understand if they're looking for a, a good quality watch, they're probably looking at a Swiss watch. If they're looking for a great quality car, they're probably looking at a German car. If they're looking for great wine, it could be Californian wines or, or, or Australian wines or French wines, of course. Did the, uh, did, I'm curious, did the vanilla, vanilla producers overcome that um, barrier? I think um, what I'm seeing here with the, the vanilla crops in North Queensland is they, they really do charge a premium price um, because it's such a little crop uh, mm-hmm. in compared to what they buy, what they produce overseas in, in Madagascar. And also, of course, there's you know, you know, different sort of you know, um, wage structures and things like that. So uh, a good quality product, I believe, the Australian vanilla, um, but very expensive, but also quite bespoke. So it's not sort of at the level that you'd expect to see um, vanilla hitting the, the stores globally. Do you have any advice for, I guess, um, local producers or small producers to um, bring or take advantage of that? Yes. So I guess um, one of the things that, that, that I personally look for, and I know that we're seeing this with consumers when I, when I talk to consumers about why you make that decision, is that they love the element of storytelling. Um, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a big craft beer fan, uh, and I, I love to try different types of ales and IPAs. And I always like to read 
the story behind the brewer. Uh, and this probably holds for the same for beef steak and things like that. I, I want to know not only the, the town or the region it's from, but t- tell me a story about you know the the farm or 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 the or the type of crop that's grown there or how long um, you know the farm has been in the family. Um, and those types of stories behind the brand really radiate with consumers and um, and I think in many ways that's what, what encourages people to buy. I know that when it comes to, to drinking certain um, craft beers, I, I want to know where was it brewed, you know, is it an independent brewery, um, what's the size of the operation, is it a small microbrewery or is it a, a very large commercial operation? That's a, that's great advice and, and it sort of, I guess, takes it to another level other than just grown here or produced locally. Here's a funny story for you. Um, well, you may not find it funny, but I thought it was funny. We have a local, uh, a friend of mine is, uh, is a beef producer and uh, she sells uh, from her farm and I had company coming in from outside of the province and I went to her farm to so they could have this local beef and I asked her, you know, well, tell me the story so I can tell my guests about this beef. And she's like, oh. Hmm. And she grabs a photo album out and she goes, well, the cow's name was, and she starts to show me pictures. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what I meant. (laughs) No, but but there's really, most people that produce beef or wheat or grains or produce wines generally have a great story to tell you know mm-hmm. it's you know the farm or the land has been in the family for many generations uh they may only sell x amount every year it's a very small uh, unique um bespoke brand uh you know and um you know limiting the volumes again creates this this this, this desire to have it so if you can buy the brand everywhere it loses it, its sense of uniqueness if it's limited supply we know that um, you know consumers are certainly willing to to to, to seek it out uh, and then present it you know over dinner or talk about it over dinner and you know I know I've been to dinners and, and people talk with great pride about this particular steak has come from this particular region on this particular farm and um, so yeah, I, my my advice to, to small businesses is if you've got a story to tell, you know, tell the story as a part of your online um, campaign, or if you can put it onto your packaging in some way, even better. That's that's really great advice. And Gary, thank you so much for uh, taking some time, and and you have so much uh, great knowledge. How can people follow you or find um, find more of your work or articles? Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I guess Twitter is one of my my, my one areas um, I, I use a lot and send a lot of information through Twitter. So um, known as the Grocery Doctor, and Doctor is just Dr. So um, so the Grocery Doctor or Associate Professor Gary Mortimer is another way to find me on on Twitter. Um, and uh, you can Google me. Um, I, I work with a university here in Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. Um, so uh, you'll be able to track me down that way as well. Well, thank you again. Uh, it's been uh, a delight to talk to you. Take care, David. Cheers.